3: On last week's show, we talked about Big Trouble in Little China, John Carpenter's 1986 action fantasy, which updates a weird Western into a movie that still feels a lot like a weird Western, even though it swaps the familiar hero and sidekick roles. The other half of this pairing is pretty short on sidekicks. Here, there are just antagonists and protagonists, warriors and monsters. It's based on a fighting video game, so all the characters are pretty much equal until they start to face off, and in this case, level up. The 2021 Mortal Kombat, directed by Simon McCoy, Drops former Mortal Kombat star Johnny Cage in favor of newbie Cole Young, played by Louis Tan, as a small-time MMA cage fighter who actually isn't all that great at fighting. That becomes a problem when it turns out that he's the last of the line of the great Japanese warrior Hanzo Hisashi, and he's marked with a sigil that means he's been chosen to represent Earth, or in this mythology, Earthrealm, against the fighting forces of a mysterious place called Outworld. If Earthrealm, and I'm going to try to keep a straight face as I explain this, if Earthrealm loses one more fighting tournament against Outworld, then Outworld will invade and conquer Earth. Based on this movie, we know nothing about Outworld, except that it looks like a pretty dank place to live, and it produces all kinds of weird warriors with wings or forearms or acid breath or super speed. By comparison, Earthrealm's warriors look pretty puny, especially since most of them haven't figured out how to tap into the secret hidden powers their Earthrealm warrior sigils give them. That's why the new Mortal Kombat, which premiered simultaneously on HBO Max and in theaters, doesn't ever actually get around to the Mortal Kombat tournament. This entire movie is just prologue, with the Earth fighters figuring out their identities and their powers, while a bunch of dirty outworld cheaters try to murder them. We'll get into the weirdness of that dynamic after this.
0: First learned about this seven years ago. On a mission in Brazil, to capture a wanted fugitive. When we got there, it tore through our unit in seconds. The target has superhuman abilities. It had the same marking you do, Cole. It's a birthmark. What do you mean? He was born with it. It's not a birthmark, Cole.
3: Okay, so I think the big question with Mortal Kombat, based on everything that I've been seeing online and kind of based on my own reaction, is individually for everybody here, is this movie dumb fun or is it just dumb?
4: For me, it was mostly dumb and not all that fun. And I've been told that a character named Kano would would fill me with comic delight. When in fact I found the character of Kano repulsive from the yeah. moment he was on the screen until <laughs> the mo- well, I don't want to spoil it for well, you know, he dies. Um, but I don't know. When I watch a movie, I watch a movie, I sit down, and I focus on it. When I play a video game, I'm 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 less likely here. Specifically, I downloaded the most recent Mortal Kombat game not that long ago, and I had, and I was playing the story mode and the story is not that great. I will usually check my email or do check Twitter or something while while those those cutscenes are playing. But I'll, I'll I won't skip them out of due diligence. I kind of wish I could have done that with this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know. I, to me, I, I guess it was some ways better than than you might have expected. I think if you go into this. Wanting all kinds of references to the Mortal Kombat game. If you want flawless victory, if you want at least a couple of shots where people square off in perfectly symmetrical compositions before they start fighting one another, <laughs> uh, you you'll probably be fine with this. But I was, I was mostly, I was mostly bored. I did, I did. I will confess because I am a horrible person. My favorite part of the movies were the grody kills, and and mm-hmm. I look forward to those. And the rest, I could kind of take a lead to be honest.
2: Yeah, the thing about Kano because I've I've definitely seen like a a similar argument that he's like you know the highlight or whatever. Like, I don't disagree with that, but also I don't like Kano as a character. <laughs> but I, I think that illustrates just how bland every other uh, character in the, in this movie is, especially Cole. I guess our our main protagonist is just a kind of a a big old nothing. You know, I am going to perhaps surprise some of you and uh, agree with Keith that my favorite parts were also the the grody kills, Um, (laughs) uh, particularly the the ones that were a reference of some sort to the video game. And I, I say that as someone who has not kept up with the Mortal Kombat game franchise since probably the late 90s, so I don't I don't really know much about its, its modern iterations. I'm, you know, I, I just know kind of the, the classic uh one and two arcade version, and that's it. But, you know, like, I, I think one of the more gleefully audacious ones was uh, Jax's arms. <laughs> you know, like, we got a, a, an origin story for Jax's arms, uh, metal arms, <laughs> and it was uh, exceedingly gory. <laughs> so, you know, there were occasional moments like that, but even still, even if they were like, I guess, inventive on paper, they the CGI of this movie is just so weightless. And I actually found myself thinking of you, Keith, during this because I was like, what, how much more fun would this movie be if it had like 70s style paint blood mm-hmm. and, and like yeah. just leaned into uh, kind of what we were talking about with Big Trouble in Little China, like a more presentational, performative aesthetic rather than attempting, something like realism in a scenario where realism is, like has no place being. Yeah. I did not enjoy this movie. I don't have very strong recollections of it less than a week later. But, you know, it's it's a movie I watched.
4: <laughs> I'll, I'll actually, one other element that, that I sincerely thought was pretty good, which had to do with Jax and how they treated his use of his, his robot arms as it played out as basically as a soldier recovering from uh to you know, adjusting to prosthetics story. And I thought, you know, I don't think it was particularly I don't think it was, you know, you know, deeply Elegant. moving in any way. But <laughs> no, awesome. but it but it but it was it was something, you know. And then of course he grows super, super powered, uh extra, extra awesome robot arms, <laughs> <laughs> and all those problems go away in an instant, but still there was something there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes we choose, uh, you know, we have some really good uh, <laughs> contemporary films to pair <laughs> with our classic films. Sometimes we don't, and I, I have to say, I was really kind of psyched about this movie because I, I, because where it was on the calendar was was right where I was going to get the second shot and potentially I'd see it in theaters. I was, I always imagined my first movie back was going to be. You know something stupid and gratuitous, and this seemed to kind of fit the bill. I did not see it in the theaters, but I had I, I did kind of have that in mind. You know when I kind of sat down on a Friday in front of the largest TV we have and turned the lights off, and the volume up, and I was ready to go and to have a good time. And this movie just doesn't provide it. It's not fun. It just isn't. It the violence which i would enjoy i mean i like good explicit violence and there are some moments that reference the video game i the one kano moment i did like was when he said kano wins i thought <laughs> that was really funny. Um, so i mean i would like I, mean, I like theoretically a movie that was kind of done in that spirit but like even that opening conflict that you know that, that you got to see the first however many minutes of the film on hbo max before it actually got there on that friday sort of was deflating because you, you think like that's not a proper braining <laughs> you know like, like that, the blood is the blood is, that's very digital that blood <laughs> why, why aren't people getting uh, I, I really want to hear you know to see something a little messier you know a little like a little like suctiony sounds or something it just felt very cold and you know video gamey know you know in a bad way
3: where were you in the 1970s when uh, Fangoria was looking for you specifically as a writer, Scott? I know, I know.
1: <laughs> I, or, or, yeah, or the 2020s, I guess. They're still around.
3: Yeah, yeah, but, but, but maybe I, but a I little did... less focused on uh, here's exactly how this brain exploding, oh, brain, uh, right. this yeah. practical brain exploding effect took place. I would
1: have liked more of that, but I, I think just generally nothing has been done on a script level, on a performance level to bring these characters any kind of life. I mean, they're just Kano. We're focused on Kano because he's at at least has a personality that we can react to, even if Mm -hmm. that reaction is repulsion. I don't think any of the other characters even make it up to that standard of being memorable or being, you know, or being having any kind of hook that you could grab onto in any direction.
4: Not Sonya Blade, (laughs) (laughs) not Jax, (laughs) not Lord Raiden. It's not so zero. boring.
1: It's like, oh, we're special forces. Blah blah blah. It's like I don't know. I, I've seen these. It's just I, I find those characters to be boring.
2: Yeah, I mean, Sonia Blade was really disappointing to me because I typically played as Sonia when I when I did play, mm-hmm. but also that character and that actress Jessica McNamee gets saddled with so much terrible exposition, dialogue, uh, like explaining what Mortal Kombat is, you know, and like their <laughs> my research, my research, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, like, you can see, you can, like, feel the attempts at humor or cheek or levity, like, trying to, like, claw their way out of the script. Like, when Cole, like, makes a little joke about you 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 spelled combat wrong or... Like Kano makes some comment about how Sonia can't pay him two million dollars look at the shithole she lives in and then a few beats later she's like I, look at the shithole I live in you know like there's these beats these comic beats that are clearly intended to up the sort of like meta comedic quality of, of this whole exercise but they don't deliver whether it's performance or just you know there are too few and far between but there's a version of this movie that is like kind of gleefully reveling in what is ridiculous about Mortal Kombat. And it just never gets there. You know, there's flashes of it with, you know, your, your finish him jokes or, or whatever, but everything around it feels way too self-serious. I think that maybe kind of again comes back to the sort of very CGI world that we're in that is like striving for some sense of realism. And I think that's like, that's the wrong choice with with this movie. You know, I think it's probably the wrong choice with a lot of video game movies because the video game, the modern video game aesthetic is striving for like, super realism so i think if you want to differentiate your movie as a movie you need to do something aesthetically different in order to not just make it look like that video game translated to the screen
1: well tasha love this one though right
3: oh yeah i mean this is honestly this is the best movie that i've seen in (laughs) 2021 or maybe my life gosh there's a bunch of different things to unpack there Uh, i laughed when hanzo said get over here uh, which is a video game reference. Sure. It makes perfect sense that the ancient Japanese warrior who's been in hell for 400 years or whatever it is uh, would would speak in English.
2: When- but which Chinese hell was he in? Well,
3: he's probably in <laughs> Japanese hell. Uh, oh, sorry, actually, that's right. Actually, Genevieve, I think you'll find that he was actually in the Nether Realm, which is a uh, separate realm from both Earth Realm and Outworld. <laughs> Uh somebody somebody might have done her research to make sure that she was getting Outworld right because she was afraid it was actually Out Realm and she was getting it wrong in the script. My big feeling with this movie was that I was fine with it for most of the movie because I was anticipating payoffs that never arrived. Like, <laughs> like Sonya Blade. So you know, that's <laughs> but, the, honestly, like, that's the, the reason that's the for the movie exist. <laughs> My letterbox review is basically, you know, negative 11 million stars, no actual Mortal Kombat with a K. And it, it was a joke, but at the same time, it's not a joke. You know, the setup for this movie is the big tournament is going to decide whether our world lives or dies. And we don't actually see a big tournament. We don't ever get there. The big setup for the the supposed hero's arc is here's a guy who's not very good at fighting and not necessarily great at being a father and not necessarily good at understanding himself or why he does what he does. But he's going to figure all that out. And then he's going to become like cool and interesting in a way he's not. And he sort of figures it out. But he doesn't become any of those cool things. He's still kind of a bland non-entity. And then when it comes to like facing down the big enemy, he he doesn't even really get to do it. He spends most of that battle sidelined. And this is after he says, "Like here's how we're gonna play this. We're gonna all have a big." Like, gang up fight on the, the super villain, and it's going to be really cool because we're all going to get to show our stuff, and then that doesn't happen either. So, like, I kind of cruised through this movie in no brain mode on, you know, okay, invisible acid spitting lizard's monster that they have to fight. That's that's kind of cool. Excuse me, his name is Reptile. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't have a formal introduction to Reptile. Thank you. You know, just like that level of engagement. Like, oh, I recognize that reference. Oh yeah, here's that character. Oh yeah, that he that's what he would look like in CG or whatever. But at the back of my head, I was like, All right, we've placed all of these bottles up on the wall and eventually this movie's gonna shoot them off. And it just ignores them. And with the movie ends with them just sitting there, and I was like Uh, really? That's where we're going to go with all of this? You know, Sonya Blade's whole arc is, she isn't a champion of Earth for some reason. And then her payoff is, oh yeah, you are now. Bye. (laughs) We're done with you for the movie.
4: (laughs) It it doesn't help that the final fight is the least uh, involving of, of all the fight scenes in the movie, I thought.
3: And it just feels like it has, you know, it's got what I'm at this point thinking of Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman disease. Like a bunch of the Marvel movies did it before, but that was the movie where it really hit home because the characters are dynamic and interesting and human. And then the end is like two digital effects wailing on each other in what feels like it just doesn't have a whole lot of stakes. And here, In theory, you're getting the payoff of this gigantic grudge match that's been going on for centuries over like the slow accumulation of power. But the motives for both Sub-Zero and Hanzo, apart from you killed me, no, you killed me, are on like both of them kind of say like on behalf of the group that we're not going to explain and that you know nothing about whatsoever, unless you're like deeply steeped in the lore, maybe. Both of them are motivated by things that are entirely off screen and that we don't see or feel. And by the end, neither one of them is human. And the way they physically respond to damage or pain is completely unpredictable because the the movie doesn't care about anything except keeping the battle going. So there was never a sense of escalation. There was never a sense of stakes. There was never a sense of people there. And that was where I got to the point of, okay, but I don't care about any of this. I think we care about Kano, even though we all hate Kano. (laughs) Hating Kano is an emotion. You know, (laughs) Kano is an actual villain in this movie that we can relate to the horribleness of. Because, like, we've all dealt with obnoxious people. And, like, he gets a payoff for being obnoxious. The real villain in this is somebody who has no human motivation, no relatability, and just no interest level whatsoever.
2: I am going to disagree with you, albeit without any real like enthusiasm or investment <laughs> in this argument. <laughs> but as far as the, the stakes, like- Genevieve. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm staying on theme. But as far as like, you know, us never actually getting the tournament, I'm willing to read that as sort of clever. And there's already been two Mortal Kombat movies made that I, I don't know, I didn't see the, the second one's been a really, really long time since the first, but like, they do the tournament thing, you know, and I feel like at this point we don't necessarily need a tournament uh narrative in a mortal Kombat movie it's like okay that it is sort of like the background context and like at one point like shang sung makes a comment about basically like we're cheating <laughs> you know like we're, we're we're not gonna have the ninth tournament like we're just we're cheating we're, we're taking over earth realm you know 10th sorry <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> um <laughs> In in a movie
3: where the only value is the lore and the, uh, the recognition stuff, it might matter.
2: I mean, it's not that the tournament doesn't exist. It's just that the story here isn't about the tournament. That said, we do still more or less get that dynamic toward the end where they all are sort of shuttled off to their own individual fights, a couple of which I think are like, actually on like locations from the video games like direct references to video game locations and we get like these one-on-one fights that i feel like that's where we get our sort of tournament dynamic but um, those fights
3: are all so rushed though they're so perfunctory yeah like as a build-up to that point like the movie just kind of completely sells them off
2: But if we did actually, like, go through the whole tournament, would we not just have a bunch of short perfunctory fights as well? Or like a montage of of a bunch of fights? I mean, when you have this many characters... That said, like I don't want to sound like I'm like defending this choice too hard because like I don't think it would have been good one way or the or the other, but it is I guess I recognize the instinct to turn this into a different kind of Mortal Kombat story, one that I guess is an origin story for this character who is not who is new to the franchise? Uh, this this cool person, and like using that as a way to like do Mortal Kombat movie in a new way. Um, I don't think it succeeded in doing it, but like I said, I get the not doing the tournament.
1: Thing. He's he's my new favorite uh, Mortal Kombat character, <laughs> Cole. Oh yeah, here's, fantastic. Here's the thing about uh, that, what, though,
2: Genevieve. I I would agree with you if it was done remotely well. Did you not hear me say I'm not enthusiastic about this <laughs> argument? Talk? I'm going to rip your, your chest out, and uh it's like, all right, finish, finish me.
3: Scott's heart out his chest and stick it in your chest. No,
1: I want my heart. I need it. Wait, she doesn't need two hearts. Oh uh, well, we'll
3: see. Hey, it, she's got such a big heart already. Who knows? Here's the thing, though. Uh, If if it was done well, or if it was done definitively, I I would agree with you. Like, I like the conceptual idea of this isn't going to be another tournament film. But if they were going to do that, they needed to commit to it on both ends of the film. They needed to commit to it on the one end by not saying we've won the last nine tournaments and all we have to do is win the last tournament and Earth is ours. Mm -hmm. Like, why set up that dynamic if if they're going to go through all this trouble to cheat, it's like, but you've already basically won. Like, Earth champions are lame. You keep winning tournaments. You've got this in the bag. All you need to do is show up. And instead, you're going to a lot more trouble to cheat. And it it ends up not going very well for you. It's the tournament that happens every thousand years, and we don't want to risk it, the one tournament. So we're not going to have it. Then instead of this this weird sense of, there's a whole bunch of important stuff that you didn't get to see and it's all going to culminate in this one important thing that you're also not going to get to see that just ends up being a really weird dynamic
1: but, but aren't and they then, trying to dodge uh, a prophecy though I mean isn't that the whole point of just of yes, not waiting trying for the tournament it, <laughs> you know, it, makes, it makes plot sense I've been defending Genevieve on this one This is <laughs> uh, it makes a lot of sense you know if they wait and of course you know they know that these flabber hammocks or whoever that you know to use a turn from saturday night live <laughs> do you remember that at all with the, no. with the hans and Franz. F- oh god f- <laughs> <Flaw> <laughs> wow anyway uh they don't they're not at their best they haven't come into their powers it's time you can kind of undercut them before they realize this prophecy uh you know by gaining their powers and being in, in good shape when they're actually at the official tournament i get it it makes oh. it makes sense
4: oh. yeah but i mean the just having a prophecy is a license to do whatever bullshit you want to do with the story, you know. Yeah, it's Maybe I'm, really I'm true. a little. I'm a little. One of my favorite podcasts is the Flophouse, House, and and one of the co hosts, uh, co-hosts, uh, Stuart Wellington, is is uh, instantly turned off when a film opens with with a prophecy. And I, I sort of <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, I think he's got a point. You know, yeah. Uh, it, it is. It is sort of the uh, here. Let's just lay out the rules and and uh, that allow us to do whatever we want to right away.
1: You get that Alone in the Dark uh, scroll or whatever the notorious Alone in the Dark scroll. There's also
3: just the idea of if this tournament was mandated by the gods and the gods are lazy or absent or whatever and aren't actually enforcing anything, why bother with the frickin tournament in the first place? Like, just go invade Earth if they don't mind you showing up on Earth and murdering all of Earth's champions, it just doesn't seem like they're going to rise up if you just do the thing that you want to do instead of the thing you're doing so you can do the thing you want to do. And then at the end, like the whole subversion of, well, we're just not going to have a tournament, we're going to have fights, is kind of lost when we get to the end and they're like, okay, well, you you won, but you didn't really win because we're just going to resurrect everybody and have the tournament. And then you're just setting up a sequel that, we don't want based on how poorly you paid off everything you promised us in this movie
2: see all all of that just keeps leading me back to like the idea that this film was attempting to do something real meta with its video game origins that it just like didn't Achieve, you know, because like the like the prophecy or like the opening, you know, text about the tournament or whatever, like that's that's a video game opening, you know, and the you know everyone gets resurrected. That's a video game, you know. Like there's all these like sort of plot mechanics that are you know lazy or annoying or don't make any sense, like. If you squint, they can all be sort of presented as, oh, but we're just like commenting on the video game format in movie form, you know. Again, I don't think this film achieves that, but I think there are seeds of that idea sprinkled throughout.
3: Well, we want more than a sprinkling of ideas uh, <laughs> seeded throughout. We want a f- we want full bore ideas. <laughs> so maybe in order to get them, we can look back at Big Trouble in Little China. And we'll see how the two films compare to each other uh, when we bring up connections in the next segment.
0: This is where we keep all we've learned about the dragon markings. First learned about this seven years ago. Jax and I were on a mission in Brazil to capture a wanted fugitive. When we got there, the target had superhuman abilities. Tore through our unit in seconds. The target had the same marking you do, Cole. When Jax finally took it down, the dragon marking transferred directly onto his skin. I've spent years trying to figure out what it all means. Seems that throughout history, different cultures all over the world, they reference a great tournament. Look, my research shows that there's realms and species that we didn't even know existed. That dragon marking? It signifies that you've been chosen to fight for Earth. It's an invitation to fight for something known as Mortal Kombat.
4: Did you make that last part up? (laughs) It just kind of sounds like you made it up. I mean, and look, they spelled it wrong. Hey,
0: you listen to me. I think there's another tournament coming.
3: Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, Jennifer, you want to kick us off here? Uh,
2: sure. Uh, let's kick off by talking about uh, My Beloved Violence. Wait, no, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know... Wow, I did rip Scott's heart out of his chest and put it in yours, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. No, but obviously these are... Both movies that are, you know, very violent and gory to different extents, you know, and sort of with different intent behind them. But they're also both movies that are uh, whose violence kind of stems out of the the martial arts tradition, and sort of a blend of you know actual martial arts style fighting with special effects, both practical and digital. And obviously, we're we're looking at uh, over over three decades of, of filmmaking changes separating them. So they're they, they look uh, a lot different in, in how they present that violence. But uh, it's I guess as far as the filmmaking instincts and the story, or I should say the storytelling instincts behind the violence in these two films, do you do you think they are are similar or coming kind of from different places?
4: I think in some ways they're not as dissimilar as they might seem at first. I mean there's much more explicit violence in Mortal Kombat, but it's not like. And, and whereas Big Trouble in Little China plays more direct homage to the classic martial arts films that preceded it, but those could be pretty violent too. And you know, we talked about seventies blood and 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 how you know stage blood of older films is more evidently blood in some ways. But I almost feel like, uh, you know, without giving it any more credit than it deserves, I almost feel like Mortal Kombat's doing the digital era equivalent of that sort of violence. There's mm-hmm. never you never really. I think. Genevieve can can enjoy those those wholesome, uh, uh, you know, people getting sawed in half scenes because (laughs) it never really feels like someone's getting sawed in half, you know. There's a stylization to it. There's a distance, I think, in both the ways both these films deal with violence.
3: Although there's definitely more of a sense of suffering in Mortal Kombat. There's uh, especially in the opening sequence, like you really feel Hanzo's pain as he gets repeatedly stabbed and as he struggles and struggles and struggles to survive all of those stabbings on behalf of his uh, wife and children. There's uh, certainly a sense as where we're watching somebody be chainsawed in half with a hat you know, there's a sense as, as she's like fighting and struggling that she's, she's feeling it all like all the way down to her midsection. Um, she's still fighting. So there's a lot more of a sense of pain, I think, uh, there than in Big Trouble in Little China, where, you know, it's the kind of martial arts films where people can get stabbed, people can get run through or, or have body parts cut off. But there's not really an, an emphasis on the the drama due to the torturous aspects of violence.
1: I think we also have two films with very different audiences in mind. You know, Big Trouble in Little China is kind of shooting for that Ghostbusters crowd or whatever is kind of shooting for or Indiana Jones or whatever of just of a general audience. Uh, it's not, so the violence is, there's not a lot of blood. It's silly. It's, uh, you know, it's, it of course, you know, uh, there's a lot of practical effects and kind of uh, fun visual effects, but there's not a great deal of emphasis on, the kills, you know, as there is, of course, in Mortal Kombat, which is proper with Mortal Kombat. I think, uh, you know, it was it was the thing I was kind of excited about when I sat down to watch Mortal Kombat was the kills and to see to try to see
2: that was like a, a, the big thing because like the other Mortal Kombat movies, like you didn't get the fatalities, you know, right. and so so we were That's... getting the fatalities here.
1: Yeah, so it's the core mission of the thing, and, and the film had the rating and it had the. Uh, you know, latitude to present that kind of ultra violence and in a way that was going to be kind of viscerally exciting, and uh, I think it really just dropped the ball, you know, and it does it almost Im- immediately, to my mind. I didn't feel a whole lot of pain. Maybe in a couple of moments, you you, you wince a little bit, but it would have been you know a lot more fun if they had if uh, it had done what it seemed to promise to do in terms of delivering you know, the old, little, the old ultra violence in a way that was more satisfying.
3: I remember running across a quote from Carpenter when I was uh, researching the, the keynote where he talks about managing the fight scenes in Big Trouble via what he, he called it something like using every cheesy trick in the book, you know, using smoke bombs and trampolines uh, mm-hmm. and reverse shots, that kind of thing in order to uh, like create the effect of dynamic fighting. You know, at Dennis Dunn, the kind of the martial arts star at the center of it all, didn't know martial arts. He was he was not a martial artist. He was not trained in that regard at all. He had Chinese opera training. <laughs> Very much makes me wonder if he actually was the one doing all those backflips. I assume not because we don't see his face. But there was a lot of cheating involved in making that violence happen. And when all of your violence is digital, you know, is digital creatures getting their hearts ripped out or their arms cut off or getting bladed in half or whatever. You don't have to cheat away from the camera and you don't you don't need trampolines. Although I do find the the flying trampoline bodies during various explosive moments of uh, big trouble, like pretty charming in a ridiculous sort of way.
2: One thing that stuck out to me uh, immediately in Big Trouble in Little China because it's in the the first big fight is uh, the guns there's a, a shootout, you know, right at right at the top that, that gives way into, you know, a different sort of, of action scene where, like, the supernatural kind of invades. But, you know, there are there are other gun moments throughout the film, and that's not something I typically associate with kung fu or, or martial arts films. It's definitely something I associate with Westerns, which, you know, as we've talked about, Big Trouble and Little China is sort of merging those two forms. So, so it absolutely makes sense and i guess kind of maybe pivots <laughs> us into uh, another yeah, connection we had down here which is sort of the east meets west quality of, of these two films and sort of the hollywoodization of of martial arts uh that, that both of them represent so yeah the gunfight in uh big trouble in little china just kind of like sticks out to me as like kind of an encapsulation of the the meeting of of east and west in both of these films
1: i think it's i think big trouble in little china is such a thoughtful meshing of these two worlds i think that was an opportunity i think that carpenter wanted to seize on is like okay let's let's really mix and match these things let's have elements of the western world we're going to have guns we're going to have a lead character who is kind of a buffoonish twist on john wayne but then we're also going to have you know characters and supernatural events in fighting that that are familiar to you know traditional martial arts films and pay homage to that those traditions as well so uh, i think there's something kind of thoughtful and fun about the mix of east and west and big trouble little china even if it might have us think about maybe when the film might stub its toe on a stereotype or something like that at least or if it's
2: it's, or if it's appropriation you know sure
1: exactly or outright appropriation but at least it at least it's trying something at least it's trying to make the effort I, i i never feel like mortal Kombat is doing that it's very flat or there doesn't seem to be any kind of Knowledge or understanding of the martial arts, you know, movie tradition at all. And, and it, it just seems like a an attempt to. It seems know, like
2: the tradition is all coming from the video game the video and, game, like, the exactly. backstory of these characters. Well,
4: they're elevating the IP. Oh, for God's sake! To use <laughs> yeah. the uh, phrase <laughs> used by the screenwriter, they're elevating the IP. So,
3: I think <laughs> an interesting aspect of that is that in Big Trouble in Little China like almost as if Carpenter's trying to work against accusations of Orientalism. You know, the idea that all of these people are Chinese. So like, of course, they live in a, an exotic world full of the ghosts and the supernatural and dragons. Like that just makes perfect sense. Instead of taking that approach, we actually get the scene where Wang explains to to Jack, like, we all grow up with these myths. They're, they're kind of a part of the culture. But like, we're modern people. we We mostly don't believe in this stuff. And it's just as weird for Wang to like, see some of these things going on as it is for Jack. It's just that he has kind of a cultural mythos to have some idea what he's looking at where Jack doesn't. And I think what becomes really interesting is in Mortal Kombat, you sort of have the same dynamic with a bunch of Westerners who are completely clueless about all of this magic fighting stuff, meeting up with a couple of Asian characters who have been training their entire life to activate Mm -hmm. their arcana and understand these powers and accept their responsibility to the world and their need to fight for it. And it just goes completely unremarked on. Like the fact that they come, one of them comes out of a a literal Shaolin tradition of using superpowers to save humanity. And it's just, it just completely blows by. In much the same way, it kind of blows by that, you know, a a Shaolin monk with literal superpowers has to kind of try to get a bunch of like know-nothing Westerners up to speed in a month or less. That's just, it's a lot of training and, and discipline and philosophy to try to cram into somebody in three weeks. But, of course, it's a Western chosen one narrative. So, of course, they eventually all kind of like pop into their powers.
1: One thing we didn't remark on, too, with... Big Trouble in Little China is how we're quite, you know, literally tourists into this, that Egg is driving this tour bus and he's kind of giving, you know, and there's, some, there's kind of an inside joke there about, you know, the sort of brief history he's trying to give people on this tour bus of Chinatown and how it was founded and everything. And I think there's that implication, I guess, that the movie itself is an act of tourism as well, that the, that we can't really, that we're outsiders to this world that we can't know it as well as the people who actually live there and uh, live this history, there's a deference to Big Trouble in Little China that's winning, and and again, I just don't think any of this stuff is thought through in Mortal Kombat at all. I just the whole thing is just so flat and hard. It's almost hard to talk about Mortal Kombat, <laughs> <laughs> other than just hanging on Kano because there's something to hang on to. It's so hard to like think about. That anything was done with much intentionality or, you know, passion. It's just very flat, right? When you talk about East meets West in Mortal Kombat, what are we even talking about? You know?
3: It's almost like you're talking Not about a, a, a 2D game and how, when <laughs> it turned into a, a 3D uh, experience without a particular forethought, it, it doesn't take on a third dimension. But I, but the thing is, I think those ideas are there. I I think introducing Western warriors, you know, a, an MMA a mixed race person and a couple of American Army combat veterans, you know, they're both coming out of very different martial arts traditions, very different warrior traditions, and they're meeting a couple of a very very old school, very traditional trained people from. Martial arts traditions, like the roots of it are there. It's almost impossible not to talk about how much this is playing into just the idea. I'm thinking about, for instance, uh, Gina Prince Bythewood's The the Old Guard and how it kind of did a similar thing with this handful of people who had been warriors immortal warriors down through the ages. And they could come from different cultures. They could come from different warrior traditions. So they were going to have different ways of fighting and different ways of thinking about fighting. But, you know, they all eventually kind of like train down to become these perfect warriors. That's a, a sort of a thought through version of this. And this is just kind of like, yeah, you know, it would be cool if we had like, kind of a loud white guy with an accent and like a super cool Chinese dude and like a a badass black dude and like a hot lady. Let's just throw all that together. And then didn't think about it any further than that. Than those like really, really superficial, what looks badass on screen
2: this and now we're done. I think it's also notable, I guess, that uh, Mortal Kombat uh, denies us uh, Johnny Cage, who is a character that is a, he's a, he's a Hollywood star. He's a Hollywood martial arts star and a, a, a white man. And Instead, we get this this new character of Cole and the implication that, uh, you know, we'll meet Johnny Cage in a a stand or a sequel or some sort of standalone, you know, origin story for him. But
3: like, oh
4: please,
2: I know, I know.
3: I I can see we can all not wait for the Mortal Kombat sequel.
2: But like, you know, that's a character who kind of, you know, theoretically encapsulates a lot of these ideas about, you know, East Meets West and the mar- martial arts tradition in Hollywood. And uh, he's he's just not there. Maybe it'll it'll happen in the Johnny Cage sequel. <laughs> it's,
1: like, it's like, come on, Simon McCoy, do better. Uh, that's what I kept saying to myself. I'm so disappointed in you, Simon McCoy. Um <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but, but i think i uh, honestly watching these two movies i don't know this is not even a connection this is more like a big ex- existential sigh it's like what what are we doing like <laughs> ho- th- what is like what are we doing this is ho- what is hollywood's idea of fun in 1986 compared to 2021 i mean what what are we doing th- th- this is not fun show me fun like big trouble in little china i mean you know even if you hate Big Trouble Little China, you know it's at least you can at least acknowledge it's trying to show you a good time, right? At the movies, you're having it's trying to do something uh, that to, to entertain you. Like, where is that here? It's not fun. It's like it's so cold. You know all the all of this this revival of IP. It just feels like there's so much stress involved in paying that off and just making that even possible that they forget about like why we would want to watch a movie to begin with it's just it's just joyless uh, it's, it's almost as if some joyless.
4: ip wasn't supposed to be turned into movies it's almost almost
3: yeah. as though uh, you know reviving the ip without caring about the contents has been a problem with the movies since the beginning it's it, don't blame it on 2021 scott like it bad movies oh, bad movies I, 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 coming just... out of series or franchises or, or sequelizing uh good movies like have been around since very close to the dawn of cinema. It's not just a 2021 problem. It's a sequelitis problem. It's a reboot remake problem. It's well, a familiar name gets butts in seats problem. And it's a problem that's never going to be solved until people stop going to things just because they recognize the name.
2: Right. Like I'm going to say this and watch uh, Scott and I don't know, maybe all of you just like shrivel into a ball when, when I, when I do, but I think for a lot of audiences, Seeing IP on screen is fun at the movies. Like th- that recognition of the thing you like in one form showing up in another form is exciting. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I. I'm not trying to put him on blast because he didn't actually like the movie very much at, at all. But like, uh, Steve, my fiance was very excited for this movie because like Mortal Kombat was, a you know, a bit of a, a formative experience for, for him growing up in the, you know, the original movies too. Like it was, he was very excited to, to watch this movie. And, uh, you know, the, parts of it that he was most engaged with were like, oh, that's a move I recognize or that's a, a reference to the, the franchise that I that I get. And, you know, that is perhaps a distressing way to to think about engaging with film. But I think we have to like, be realistic that to a lot of viewers that is fun and appealing.
3: I'm not cringing down to the soul of me or shriveling up into a ball at that <laughs> at all. I think you're exactly right. And I guess what comes to mind is uh, I have a friend who was a huge fan of the Mortal Kombat games. And when the first Mortal Kombat movie came around, he went to a theater to see the movie, very excited. And he sat down near somebody he describes as a like kind of a scrawny teenager who like wasn't vocally reacting to the movie much at all. But whenever a new character appeared on screen, this kid would just start like obsessively whispering under his breath, Johnny Cage. Johnny Cage, Johnny Cage, (laughs) Sub Zero, Sub Zero, Sub Zero, (laughs) Scorpion, Scorpion. Like anticipating the movie eventually naming that character. And when I think of Mortal Kombat to this day, a voice just whispers obsessively in the back of my head, Johnny Cage, Johnny Cage. Because that's, <laughs> I mean, to some degree, that is the audience. The the There's an audience that's like, okay, in this version, what does Scorpio look like on screen? What does it mean to be Scorpio on screen? What does it mean to be Kano on screen? What does it mean to be Jax on screen? And like just seeing a thing that they love in a new form is a thrill it may ultimately be like a a hollow or disappointing or empty thrill but it's enough of a thrill to get them through the three-fourths of the early movie that we found so tedious while we were waiting for something to happen
1: Uh, i don't know what to say
3: (laughs) i
2: i I just ripped scott's heart out of his chest and showed it to (laughs)
1: him with that i don't
2: know
1: this has been a bad
2: podcast for hearts (laughs)
4: <laughs>
1: yeah it's been, uh, it's been tough it actually really I, I think i don't really think anybody should not my who knows what kind of shape my heart is in, <laughs> frankly uh so like if anyone wants to trade that i'll uh, i'll do so um but um yeah i don't know yeah I, don't know, I,
4: I think if i can find a middle ground here it's that i think we are going to have to live with ip being elevated and there are (laughs) good good ways to do it and there are bad ways to do it i think i think we all i i I wasn't on the episode but i think we all had a lot of fun with uh with godzilla versus kong uh which could be fun well it's a certain amount of fun yeah maybe there's you know we could add more we could add more Maybe, sure but i'm I'm just saying that that (laughs) that this is kind of like fairly like Algorithm slash spreadsheet driven version of uh, of filmmaking where you combine uh, certain certain elements or or you know adapt certain things because you there market testing shows that people want to see it. Uh, it's not always terrible. It's not always Mortal Kombat. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> but you're choosing the worst example sometimes to, to dwell is, on. Sometimes but, it
1: is mediocre <laughs> or yeah, slightly sure. better.
4: Sure,
2: sure. <laughs> Sometimes sure. you get like no. Wandavision, though. That's some. That's yeah. some elevated IP
4: sort of. Yeah. Oh man, that no. is a,
2: such another can of worms. I'm going to steer out of
3: the uh-huh. skid
4: as rapidly as I can, but, but because before... Well, I think we'd all agree that the Falcon and the Winter Soldier ended a lot better than it began, because Whoa, I, was waiting for, I was waiting for a big speech to kind of tie all the themes together and in the, the most ham. Anyway.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we were promised, uh, you know, there'd been nine big speeches so far, but the 10th one was the one that was going to convince us. So I was just I was waiting for us to get there and instead they subverted that. Before we wrap up with connections, one thing I really wanted to get to that I, I thought was a, a really interesting contrast between these two movies is the presence of its babbly motor mouth characters, because we keep returning to Kano as like the only character in these films that stand out. And I think Kano and Jack Burton actually look a lot like each other uh in script. Like, obviously, one of them is kind of a monster of a human being and deserves what happens to him. And the other one is kind of our hero in a cheesy distance, not actually the hero kind of way. But they're both like arrogant motor mouths that talk nonstop. They both are a little baffled about what's going on. They're both a little dumb. And I think it's interesting that a film of the 1980s like considers the kind of clueless, hapless dork. Carpenter described him as an idiot who doesn't exactly know what's going on, but won't ever shut up. The guy that can't stop talking, especially when he meets a girl, his mouth just runs over about how much uh, she likes him and how much she wants him around. That's just his way of interacting with people. Like he starts off the movie babbling a mile a minute to his buddy. He's just a talker, and it's meant to be endearing. You know, it's meant to be a little bit of an indicator of his idiocy, but also of his charm. But by mortal combat talking a lot is just, it's kind of the ultimate vice. You know, it's the stuff that he talks about, the fact that he can't stop insulting people, the fact that he can't stop using slurs and, and stereotypes, the fact that he's arrogant and he doesn't have the fighting chops to back it up, and on and on and on. All of that stuff is obviously bad, but he's so clearly being thrown in contrast to all the strong, silent types of the movie. You know, your, your hero, Cole, barely talks. You're Super, like God, good guy Raiden barely talks either, except to insult people. Silence is a virtue in moral combat, and it's it's kind of how we indicate heroism. And I just think it's really interesting how quickly we moved from the idea that the hero is the guy that gets to talk because he's the one we want to hear talk, to the hero is the one that knows, like, knows to shut up and knows that nobody wants to hear him talk.
1: I mean, that was kind of one of the things that one of the elements of Mortal Kombat that had me thinking about Big Trouble in Little China as being a a good pairing was the Kano, Burton connection. Uh, The you know, because I don't know necessarily. It's not necessarily clear at first that Kano is going to turn into a complete heel in a bad way. I mean, he's hanging out with them for a little bit and he's going to be maybe a wild card, but maybe, maybe somebody that we're, who's going to be on the side of good, but he does give us that element of commentary and, you know, fun, I suppose, you know, until things change as you describe.
4: Yeah. I think another way these kind of mirror each other a little bit is that they both have crazy creatures in them and, <laughs> In Big Trouble Little China, they're pretty much extraneous, but awesome. You know, I don't know that the big fur creature or the floating eyes or whatever really adds. You know, contributes to the narrative in any any significant way, but they're cool and they stick and with really, you. <laughs> they stick with you if for your years, apparently. Mortal Kombat. And correct me if I'm wrong, but basically just has the one. Well, there's Goru sort of well, or Goro. 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 Yeah. It's, a, it's a big, like, four armed lizardy thing or whatever. Uh, I think I could have used more of them, frankly. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, at least it's something. It's less boring when there's like a four armed uh, creature doing the fighting than, you know, a fairly uh, nondescript characters. I don't know. I'd say most, I think, my, I think the takeaway here is that most movies are improved by having uh, weird creatures in the. <laughs> Uh, But some could probably uh, double down on that a little bit more.
3: It really depends on uh, whether those weird creatures are are truly weird or are cute and toyetic and, and there to sell. Like, I'm still not down with Porgs like porks can go fall <laughs> off a cliff as far as oh, i'm concerned.
1: Oh, I, I like oh, mm-hmm. porks, come on. Just bringing in something from another movie.
3: Yeah, but i'm i <laughs> mean i am kind of making the point that it's the wrong ip. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things that i find fun about the weird critters in Big Trouble in Little China is that they're unnerving. The big ant kind of thing whatever it is that just lunges out of a wall and eats a random gang member. Like that's kind of disturbing and Jack Burton's response to it of just this like mortal terror of uh, who knows what's going to come out of the wall and and eat me, I think is um, ends up being much more interesting than something that's just hanging around in the background in order to sell toys, which is the way an awful lot of uh, movies these days use their digital creepy critters. It's just, well, you know, we need we need something that we can make into merch.
2: I mean, speaking of merch, I think, like, Goro in particular and, and Mortal Kombat is just, like, sort of, like, almost uses iconography. Like, like there's an early shot where there's, like, a giant, I don't know if it's him or, like, a statue of him in the background. Do you know what I'm talking about in Outer World? There's just, like, a massive Goro. Yeah, with, uh, with like giant on the blades horizon in its
3: arms. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that's about either. Yeah. It's kind of a cool image, which I guess you could say yeah, for ex- a whole lot of Mortal Kombat, huh?
2: Right. And, and it's also kind of interesting in contrast to uh, Big Trouble in Little China, because both Guru, Goro, I keep wanting to say Grogu. Again, wrong IP. Um, <laughs> Speaking of weird critters <laughs> but, designed to sell toys. Yeah, right. You I mean, delightful critters. But both Goro and Reptile are—they're kind of humanoid. They're monsters, clearly, but they're like they're bipedal. They have arms. They feel less uncanny, I guess, than you know the Eye Monster or the fur suit creature in Big Trouble in Little China. So I think maybe that's why they in Mortal Kombat they don't like stick out as as weird the way that the, that the ones in big trouble, in Little China, like it just feels like, okay, that's, this is more like cool looking mortal combat stuff that we're all like kind of familiar with and like, looks like the characters from the video game and reptile. I think in the video game, like, I think he's like made more, more reptilian here, unless I don't know, maybe there were later iterations of him, but I, f- I feel like he was more of a like ninja in the sub zero scorpion mold as far as design in the games, I could be wrong there. You well, are a Mortal Kombat expert. And you know why? Because he got his heart ripped out and showed to him while he was still alive.
3: Which is really all we should care about in all of this. That and the fact that Kano wins. Um, we're we're just being picky by wanting more out of this movie. But, uh, you know, we have what we get. And uh, I guess we'll reconvene when the inevitable sequel comes out. Because, you know, this movie did well enough to uh, justify another movie. HBO Max's
2: biggest debut ever.
3: Now, the question is just going to be like, are we going to get to the fireworks factory on the second movie or is it going to not be till the third movie See, that we have? I would the have a tournament? lot of respect
4: if, if they just did movie after movie promising a <laughs> tournament and never showed it. That would be amazing. It's going to be the, uh, the road
3: to movie series. It's just going to be the road to the tournament that never hmm. happens. That would kind of be amazing. Well, it may be a decade uh, down the line before we find out whether that's going to come to pass or not. And in the meantime, you can find Big Trouble in Little China on Blu-ray from Shout Factory, and you can find it like widely rentable on uh, digital streaming platforms. Mortal Kombat is in theaters and it is streaming on HBO Max exclusively until May 23rd. it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put something interesting on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world is good for you?
2: Uh, well, it's actually not in the film world. I'm going to do a, a film-related item uh, that, that is a book, but one that I think is is very relevant to uh, both of these films, particularly Big Trouble in Little China. It uh, came out last year. It actually was the winner of the National Book Award for Fiction, and uh, it is Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown a novel. Charles Yu has been a writer on a bunch of TV shows, I think like Westworld, Lodge 49, Legion. So he has a background in television writing, and Interior Chinatown is written in the style of a teleplay, but it's also a, a first-person narrative about Willis Wu, who, um like, basically he is the non-protagonist protagonist. He's uh, sort of in this role of, of background actor. He's an Asian man, obviously, and Through his story and how it's told in the context of sort of a police procedural called Black and White that is sort of like perpetually filming in Chinatown. And he is like sort of this rotating cast of background Chinese characters in this teleplay. The book just explores in a really like personal and very funny often way, just how Hollywood and beyond not just stereotypes, uh, Asian men in particular, but just sort of like creates a, a hierarchy of value and how that is kind of internalized. It's one of the most unusual approaches to storytelling I've, I've read in a long time. I actually did something that I, I normally don't recommend, especially for fiction. But I, uh, I listened to it on audiobook, and I actually think that is maybe how I would recommend uh, experiencing this book. I can't say because I didn't. That's the only way I experienced it. But because it is written in the style of of a teleplay of a script having it read that way, I think really kind of adds to uh, the effect of that. It's a book I've recommended to many, many people in the like month or so since, since I finished it. And I definitely thought about it pretty much constantly while, while doing this uh, pairing. So um, if you haven't checked it out, I would definitely recommend doing that, uh, especially maybe after this
4: pairing. I have literally checked it out uh, in the sense that I have it out from the library currently, oh, but I have, I have not read it yet. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really good. I'm looking yeah. forward to it.
2: Easy read too. Okay, so. uh, Scott, what's good for you?
1: So there, this has, this is just out of nowhere, but I had occasion to revisit the Blake Edwards, uh, Peter Sellers movie, a shot in the dark. Oh, wow. Which is the, just an absolute masterpiece of comedy in, in an example of film, direction that i think so many directors of comedy now should study closely because it, it is so beautifully staged uh it's sort of a combination of Who Done It and sort of upstairs downstairs comedy and, and to pull both of those things off you really need a lot of careful orchestration from a directorial front and so it's got that it has a really wonderful opening it was a film that i think was not intended to be a pink panther movie but was sort of reworked until until it was it was the second pink panther movie and the the best by i think a pretty good margin in my opinion um the best of the pink panther movies and this one has got (laughs) this one is where uh there's a chauffeur i believe who's murdered and the woman who's dis- discovered with a gu- you know is found with a gun in her hand and uh and Clouseau, who is very attracted to this woman is just cannot be convinced that she's responsible for this crime and so she and so you know she he, she gets booked and he fu- he keeps releasing her and other people other people die and she's the one who seems to be the one responsible for all of these murders and it's just it, everything sort of escalates in that in a very very funny way and it's done full of Great bumbling, cluso isms, and uh, I, I just think it's a a wonderful kind of timepiece of comedy orchestration and and fun. I just I think it holds up really well. And so, if you haven't seen that particular movie, or maybe you've seen it before, I would just see it and then just pay attention to what Blake Edwards is doing with the camera and with the way it, with the staging of it, because I think it's it's a real model for how, how to direct comedy. A shot in the dark. People have
4: seen, seen this one, well, yeah, not a long really, time, really but, long time, but, yeah. But I really loved it.
3: I remember yeah, a being a tremendous hoot. Uh, like Blake Edwards, in general, tends to be a master class in cinema, and I, I really feel like I should go back and revisit his work more often than I do.
1: It's good. So, what about you, Tasha? What well, do you Well, I
3: recently logged into Netflix and had it blast at me about this uh, movie called New Gods Neza Reborn, uh, which is a Chinese animation, like a full length CG animated film out of China. And it turned out that it had hit the service that day with absolutely no fanfare whatsoever. Didn't get a press release about it, wasn't on any of the release lists that I saw. Very, very strange. And it's a pretty enjoyable CG film about the rebirth of reincarnating gods in new bodies. It was uh, entertaining to watch, very flashy, very uh, chosen one kind of thing. But in kind of reading up on it, doing the research, I kind of fell down this little hole of like first reading about these Chinese myths, the investiture of the gods and journey to the West, like these kind of traditions that crop up over and over and over in Chinese mythological stories and just kind of reading about like Neza and the different ways he's broken into stories like over, literally over the course of centuries was just really entertaining and really interesting. So I went back to look at the director's other work, which is a 2019 film called White Snake which is also a big, like sort of historical fantasy epic in this case about a race of snake demons and a human sorcerer that's accumulating power. So they attempt to take him out and it doesn't go well. And the assassin ends up uh, meeting and slowly falling for a human boy. And then the human boy has to make terrible sacrifices uh, for their love, It was one of the first films I've seen on a small screen since the pandemic started that I just... Deeply regretted not being able to, to see on a big screen. Certainly not the only one, but just very, very intense feelings of wishing I could see this in a, like a, the giant projection it was clearly meant for. It's a movie of images. It is a movie of just like spectacular environments and spectacular action sequences. It's just kind of a feast for the eyes. And it goes in just some very unusual directions as far as a kind of like a Western animated fantasy feature would be concerned. It's just coming from a very different set of expectations that make it very unpredictable and exciting. Uh, so I, I think for people who like animation and are adults and are sort of perpetually looking for something that suits an adult palette, but isn't what people mean when they say adult animation in America, which is usually kind of like, you know, a Ralph Bakshi, Fritz the Cat. Stuff that's trying to mess with and break taboos. uh, This is a very different kind of thing. This is just an animated story that's aimed more at adults than children, even though it's drawing on a like a mythic resonance that, you know, in the words of Wang in Big Trouble in Little China would go back to childhood stories for people growing up in China. So it's just, it was a really interesting thing to experience, but it's also, man, what a gorgeous, lush, ridiculously over-the-top visual movie. I recommend that people look it up. It's called White Snake. Keith, what about you?
4: I have seen a lot of strange movies in my lifetime, but in some ways, I have never. Se- I've, in some ways, I haven't seen many movies as strange as one I watched last week uh, from 1937 called "History Is Made at Night," directed by Frank Borsage, uh starring uh, Charles Boyer, who I remember from our episode of uh, Gaslight and the great uh, Gene Arthur. And it's strange just isn't necessarily readily apparent. It is a delightful film and one that takes all kinds of twists and turns. And I don't really want to spoil them, but I will say this. It opens with Gene Arthur's character trying to divorce her insanely jealous husband who keeps insisting that she's cheated on him even though Uh, She hasn't. To prevent this divorce, he hires uh, someone, his chauffeur, to kind of uh, invade her her, uh, hotel room and kind of put her in a compromising position in a way that will be discovered by a private detective, thus preventing the divorce, at which point the handsome uh, Frenchman, uh, played by Charles Boyer, breaks in and fights this man. This is all in the first 5 minutes of the film. Uh from there there, there is there's there's restaurant drama, there's a shipwreck drama, uh there is uh international travel and also uh, it features a cameo by uh the puppeteer Señor Vences. Uh so it is uh as I, as I'm as I've suggested an an unusual movie but also an, a very romantic movie and and one with some some great performances uh that never really acknowledge the absurdity of the situation around them to the point where they uh, end up uh, you know feeling that much less absurd. You, you really do capture the drama of uh, this uh, peculiar uh, story. Uh, I, I, I it's very much worth your time. It's, it's currently it just came out on Criterion Blu-ray. I watched it on, on the app, but I, I'd like to dig into the uh, special features to learn more about this film, which, which maybe I'll do after we're done taping tonight. Uh, it is, so uh, it's definitely worth checking out. It's also one of those films that was kind of out of circulation for a while. Uh, so I feel like, you know, there are others, probably others out there like me who will be happy to rediscover this film.
1: Wow. That sounds crazy. I yeah, can't, it does sound it. like a really fun exciting. Give the folks the name of that movie again, Keith. Oh,
4: sorry. It's, it's History is Made at Night. Uh, directed by uh, Frank Borsage, who uh, you know is director of uh, *All Quiet on the Western Front* and, and many other films.
1: Cool. I'm excited. I mean, I saw *All Quiet on the Western Front* for the first time about a year and a half ago, and it completely blew me away. So yeah, me, uh,
4: t- me too. That was that was uh, the first time I'd i seen it. As well. You know what? You know what blew me away about that film was the sound design. It is that is an intense sounding movie on top of everything else.
3: Yeah. Well, that does sound intense. Well, we'll uh, hope that uh, people check it out and uh, see if it is as intense as it sounds. Thank you, everybody, for those recommendations. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop on May 25th and June 1st. Keith, what do we
4: have on tap? With our next two episodes, we're going to be tapping into one of the primal pleasures of moviegoing by peering into places we're not supposed to look. We're drawing inspiration from Joe Wright's new thriller The Woman in the Window, in which Amy Adams plays an agoraphobic therapist who's forced out of her shell when she suspects foul play has been visited on her friend across the way. But before we talk about that, we'll discuss the defining film about watching murder, or maybe not watching murder from a distance. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, in which James Stewart plays a wheelchair-bound photographer who suspects his neighbor might have murdered his wife. The suspicion that leads him to recruit his girlfriend, played by Grace Kelly, and his nurse, played by Thelma Ritter, to investigate the case. Voyeurism its what's next on The Next Picture Show.
3: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Big Trouble in Little China, Moral Combat, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott?
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, uh, Guardian, Ringer, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor in chief of oscilloscopes musings, uh, which has had, had some pretty great essays uh, recently. There was one by uh, Roxana Hadidi about um, uh, the movie Killing Them Softly, and uh, and a huge uh, career retrospective on. William Friedkin, uh, by Bill Ryan, uh, both quite long, but, uh, involving pieces. Uh, what about you, Keith Ips?
4: Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me at places like, uh, the, uh GQ. Uh, you can find me in TV Guide, the, at Vulture, or Polygon, occasionally at The Ringer, you know, keep up with all that on my Twitter feed at Kfips 3000. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, Genevieve, how about you?
2: I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and uh, you can find me on Twitter.com at Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha, how about you?
3: I'm the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find my work there. I'm actually writing about film again. (laughs) Go figure. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tosh Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash next picture show. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it and please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Lords.